0: It's time for First Voices Radio with Tilkeson Ghost Horse.
1: Please stay tuned.
2: Land, air, and water, it's nature's law. First Voices Radio brings to you the basics of how not to violate the law and presents the voices of people experiencing the consequences of war against Mother Earth. We bring the awareness of a different paradigm to the airwaves as we shed the same old systematic paradigm that is killing Mother Earth. You can hear the perspective of indigenous peoples throughout the world and how they live with the law. Land, air and water. the voices of the original peoples. our guests are from every continent on earth, endangered, unheard, and forbidden from being heard on mainstream and the neoliberal left airwaves, whether it is alternative or progressive radio.
1: It makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom, and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power.
2: क्या कभी अंबेडकर वास्तव दया वाचियां के चंते वास्ते ना पेचीस आप येलो ले चंते इतना e के ले उनकी पिकी है वास्तव wana कहे तुम काश ला जबकि आंकड़े वना अंबेडकर विचार वनिया वकां और यात्री वनाकी डापो Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here. Look to the Forever Ones and let's acknowledge them first and the relationship to all, the life-giving force. We need to wake up to these relations. Today will be a good day. I'm here in a humble way. I'm a common, ordinary man of earth. You are listening to First Voices Radio and I carry the name Teokasen Ghost Horse. Sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Osopis, or temporarily called the Catskill Mountains in the lands of the Munsee-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio and Liz Hill from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation is a producer of First Voices Radio. Today we have a young man out in the Lower Sioux community in southwest Minnesota and he is the industrial hemp construction manager of the Lower Sioux Hemp and Housing Project. And his name is Danny Dejarle. He uh, is in that area of southern Minnesota. It's, I'm really interested in how you got interested in Hemp Creek, Danny. But first of all, thank, thank you and welcome to First Voices Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, how did you get interested in hemp? From reading a little bit about you, you seemed to be interested, but somebody older than you was more was interested, in that that grabbed your interest to go to school and study.
0: Yeah. So I've always been in the building trades. I was going to carpentry school to get a carpentry certificate with, um, Minnesota West. And one of our elders from the community came and spoke. He was actually on tribal council at the time. He came and spoke to our class to our carpentry class about hempcrete. Um, I had only, you know, heard about it or read about it. Um, just vaguely, but he's always kind of been pushing for growing hemp and processing hemp, and he's always wanted to, in the the end, build with hemp, you know, and build houses for our community members, and so he came and spoke, and yeah, piqued my interest. I started asking him questions after after his presentation, and yeah, kind of just snowballed from there. He took me to Austin, Texas to a US hemp building summit, I got to see all the current projects and projects that were underway in the United States. Since it being such a new product in the US, I didn't think there was actually things being built in the United States and seeing all these projects that were already being built or that have had already been finished. It really opened my eyes. that This was a real building material you know it wasn't just like an oddity or just something that people talk about so it was a real industry and you know real projects going on and so it was it was real eye-opening my interest just kept going from there I guess and I keep um you know doing my own research because there there are a lot of claims in the hemp building industry that me being a conventional builder I was a skeptic at first and so i started doing my own research and i would actually even disagree with some of the things people were, would say but then working with the material i found out i was wrong every time the hemcrete really does perform the way they claim it to perform
2: mm-hmm. before we get into the material part of it could you explain this concept of
0: seed to wall yeah, so that is um, that has always been our elder, our tribal councilman Earl Pendleton, That's been his his vision, you know, or his is to cr- create entire business um, all for ourselves, a closed loop business model. Whereas we take the seed, we we grow the hemp, we um, harvest the hemp, we process the hemp, and then we take the material and we build houses with it and so basically we are controlling the entire project from seed all the way until the wall is finished until somebody's living in it and so it's an entire closed loop business model where it's fully integrated within the community where it's all tribal members that are working you know we didn't have to hire outside of the community for these projects our farmer is a tribal member. Our um, processing facility is going to be ran by tribal members, and the people working inside of that will be tri- tribal members. The construction crew that I run were all tribal members, and so it's been really great to to be able to see it from seed to wall, and and knowing that it's all community members that are doing it, and then we get to in the end have community members living in these houses.
2: Oh, and that's a great idea. I'm thinking about the stereotypical American mind would think it's one of those rainbow tribe. It's one of those hippie things from way back in the <laughs> 60s and 70s. And, you know, what's that got to do with this, this hard-nosed Northern Plains Native people who have to go through severe weather, tornadoes and hail? What are the benefits of growing hemp and you know that material has it really been tried in that area of southern Minnesota?
0: So as far as building with it, um, there there aren't any houses in Minnesota. The houses, the three that we finished this year are the the only three that I know of that are finished hempcrete structures in the state. And so we're excited to see what the testings, um, what the results will be. Um, You know, we get the most extremes here in Minnesota with the cold and then also with the hot and humid weather. So it'll be really interesting to see the numbers come out. There are quite a few people in Minnesota growing now. Same with in the Dakotas, which is kind of a similar climate, I guess. And so the benefits, to answer the question, what the benefits of growing hemp is, uh, not just in our region, but in any region, is that it sequesters so much carbon you know a lot more carbon than trees per acre and it only takes you know 90 to 120 days for you to have a finished product whereas you have to you know wait years 20 years for for trees to to harvest to be mature and so that's one of the main benefits of growing hemp is just that it cuts down on the tree consumption it also helps with the soil you know and so the the farmers that have been growing it they add it to their crop rotations and they've all said the year that they grow hemp on it the next year whatever crop they grow grows a lot better you know and so the, the roots from a hemp plant they dig a lot deeper than corn or soybeans and so getting that into your crop rotation these roots get to get down a lot deeper and pull a lot of the nutrients to the top soil that that typically doesn't get pulled up if you're if you're only doing soybean and a corn rotation, which we typically do up here in Minnesota. That's one of the benefits of just growing it just just for the fact of the the amount of carbon that it sequesters while growing and the short um, length that it takes to grow at the short amount of time, along with the cleaning of the soil. I mean, those are those are all really big.
2: Do you use um, things like? chemicals, venomous, herbicides and pesticides to grow the hemp?
0: We we haven't. And um, that is a good thing about hemp is you don't need all of the pesticides and herbicides and different fertilizers and stuff that you typically have to put into the ground and into the air when growing soybeans and corn and and other agriculture products, I guess, you know, almost every. Mm -hmm. Everything that we grow in the United States, we use all of these um, chemicals and pesticides and stuff. You know, we we've kind of gotten away from the natural products, and so hemp is a natural pro- product that can clean the soil um, without having to, you know, add all these these hazardous chemicals.
2: The ideas that you have in a long term, and hopefully this works out that way, the things that you provide to to make the walls and The the hemp that that you grow there, there has to be some, and I'm just assuming this, um, Annie, is um, that there has to be some ingredient or some input by, and you you mentioned an elder, but more traditional ideas. And I'm not too sure whether you have ceremony or what do you do with, with the hemp that comes from the earth and is it traditionally harvested? I don't know. I'm just asking this question
0: yeah so um as far as the growing side i'm I'm not the farmer, and so I don't know exactly what they do when they plant it and when they when they harvest it. I do know that is one of our kind of the choke points is finding the right the right seeds to use for our soil, when to actually plant and when to harvest so I think adding a little bit uh, maybe we do need to do some type of um, ceremonies well you know when when we are planting and when we are harvesting
3: mm-hmm.
0: I know we've kind of gotten away from our traditional ways here in our community uh, yeah. it's been stripped from us you know it, it's technically the Dakota are still exiled from the state of Minnesota and so mm-hmm. it's it's been illegal you know now, we we do start to practice our 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 traditions but we've gotten so far away from it that i, I think it would be uh, it would be good to get back to that and i think uh, i think that would be a good way to to help our um our harvest
2: yeah this is great that's good news just just mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. the idea of it hempix itself and describing the richness that it creates in the soil i think this is this is great that you're doing this this concept is innovation you know innovating with tradition too would be something else um but no um is there is there anything to do you said you already built some structures already um and are there for like low, lower housing people lower lower income people
0: yeah and so typically a hempcrete house is for people that are building their forever homes or you know, it's it's for a rich couple that's um, that has a lot of money, you know, I guess. And so we don't have a lot of members in our community that can afford houses like that. And so we still want to be able to build houses that they can afford, but that were healthier homes for them to live in and um, longer lasting homes and just better, better overall quality homes for them to live in, but still to afford them, you know? And so what we did was, wasn't typical in the hempcrete industry or in the hempcrete building world. Most of these structures that well, all the structures I've seen are, are basically, you know, for rich people or people that, that can't afford it. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to even live in these, these type of houses. And so that, that was our goal. And I think we succeeded on that. Um, we were we actually came in under priced of what a conventional build of the same size house would have been, because we didn't have to subcontract out any of the work. Everything was done in house by our community members, and so like typically the, the cost of a hempcrete house they say is anywhere from twenty to thirty percent more expensive than a conventional build, but that was when everything was getting imported, you know, now you don't have to import all the materials and even then, you know, if you're doing all the work and you have all the training in house, you don't have to hire all these experts and everything after it's, you know, we've already done that work. We've already hired the experts and paid those dues. And so now that we've already done that now, any of the builds in the future, you know, those costs will be eliminated and it's only going to get cheaper going forward. I think it was a success in these first pilot builds. But it's only going to get better. You know, the guys that we have on the crew, they got hired on less than seven months ago, We're we're a new team. And we've already built three structures together. And they've done a lot of learning in those seven months we we all have together, you know, we've we've hired different experts from around the country to come and help us in different parts. And so the tribe and our leadership has really invested. I think we're going to be able to continue to succeed because of that, you know, because we did that on this pilot project and we're only going to get better.
2: Yeah, I'm just thinking, looking at the reading about the quality, you know, how it is. uh, Additionally, it is hempcrete, right, is like fire resistant. Of course, the air quality. Inside that you know. home, living living in a plant is basically what a tree is. But yet, this seems to be more cleaning because of the fact of what it does with the earth. And it's it's um, as you said, the growing period is shorter than a tree. Talk a little bit about the qualities. Like I said, fire resistant. I know that much. Would you tell us the other qualities?
0: Yeah. So hempcrete. Um, the word itself is a little misleading. It's um, non-structural, it's non-load-bearing, and so it's not like concrete. The word hempcrete, if they could go back and change it, they would, just because, you know, you hear the word hempcrete and you think it's concrete. And so it's, uh, all it is, is the inside of a hemp stem, the stalk of of a hemp plant, the inside of that, the woody core, basically chipped up into little wood chips mixed with some, Water and uh, lime-based binder. Uh, we use a typically a hydrated lime-based binder. Mix that up, and that's your entire your entire mix. You know, three natural products. But, and that's all that's going into the wall. And so the lime in the mixture makes it fire resistant. Um, also makes it mold and pest resistant. And then if you also cover the wall with a Lime plaster, then it's an additional fire barrier. Um, we don't like to say the word fireproof, but it is completely fire resistant. Um, the ASTM testings that they do for fire resistance is the grades that they give are you know like a passing grade, a good, a great, exceptional. Well, when they do the ASTM fire resistant testing for hempcrete, it gets um, best in class. And so almost all of the testings that they do for hempcrete, for the ASTM um, certifications, they get best in class in almost every test that they do. You know, there's some that might be exceptional or whatever it is, but they, you know, it's the performance of the material is best in class, you know, as it says um, on the standard. And so the fire resistant, we don't like to say fireproof, but we just did a, um, a demonstration last week for for a camera crew and they wanted to see a burn test with hempcrete blocks. And so we pulled out a hempcrete block and a blowtorch and put it right onto the hempcrete block for about 10 minutes, you know, and it doesn't, it almost wants to put the fire out. That's how uh, uh, fire resistant yeah. it is. It's, it's pretty incredible.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, how long does one of these last? And I think there was a tidbit about How old house or hemp home
0: ago was it built? Hempcrete itself is an ancient technology. You know, we're not, there's a bridge that I think was built in 6th century, what is now France, but at the time was Gaul. And it's the pillars of this bridge are still standing and this, this bridge is still in use today. And the pillars of this bridge, there's hempcrete. there's also these caves that are 1500 years old that have hemp lime on the interior um, basically plastered onto the interior of these caves that are still good till this day the longevity is it petrifies over time with the lime in the mixture the lime when it mixed with the water it wants to turn back to limestone and so over the Once you make the mixture over the next 100 years or so, it continues to petrify. And while it's petrifying, it's actually sequestering carbon out of the air as well. Long as a house, I guess we don't know here in America because we just started building them in America. But in France, I know they've been building them since the 90s. Um, They've been working with hempcrete um, probably, I think even since the 70s, but actually I think the there's houses from the 90s. Um, there is a house that's built in Japan in 1698, I believe it was, um, and it's fully insulated with with hemp, not hempcrete. It's basically hemp bales, hemp straw for the um, for the roof. For the entire house is basically made out of hemp, um, different parts of the hemp plant and it's still in use today, it's actually a museum. And so um, there's, uh, the longevity of these houses is forever, basically, because not only will the the structure itself last, you know, as long as you're keeping it up to like minor, lime washes on the on the exterior if you're going to do a lime plaster or say if you had siding you would, might just need to switch up the siding every you know 30 or 50 years but as far as the actual wall structure itself of the hempcrete that will last forever and if there is a point in time where you want to get rid of a wall or you don't like the house and you want a new house you can take that entire wall grind it up and put it into your next hempcrete mix into your next house. And so it's not going to the landfill. You know, it's completely recyclable into your next hempcrete mixes, whatever you're going to build up. Um, this
2: this is also. all incredible, Danny.
0: Yeah. Uh, and so I was just going to say the landfills are full of construction waste right now. You know, I think the last that I seen was 40 or 50% of all landfill waste is is construction uh, materials from either new builds or tearing down old builds or remodels or whatever it is basically our landfills are half full of construction waste and so if we can start building with hemp creek we get rid of 40 to 50 percent of our landfill
2: amazing um one last question danny is you say i'm um from of course i'm from cheyenne river And I want to look into what you're doing. Can I come there and get trained if I'm from another, I call them reservations now. Um, Are you you able to do that?
0: Yeah, definitely. And so that's um, what we're really looking into now is setting up some builds where we can invite other tribes to come and learn here and then bring it back to their tribe. Um, I think it's a perfect blueprint. I think Earl is a true visionary for what he'd seen for the past 12 years, uh, Earl, who or who's Earl, Earl Pendleton, Earl Pendleton. Sorry. he's the yeah. the, this is all his fault. You know, this is, uh,
2: <laughs> all his doing here. And okay. so I think
0: he really is a true visionary to be able to see, you know, 12 years ago that this is such a big thing of what it is, you know, and the opportunities here for all of us here for jobs and for housing now, I think it is the perfect perfect blueprint for any any community you know especially a tribal community we're not doing anything special we're not reinventing anything you can google anything that we're doing but it's just the fact that we're actually doing it is the special part and the group of guys that we have that are building now they all have they have a why you know um they have (laughs) we're we're all like rallying around this bigger this bigger thing and so it's really brought us all together. And I think if you go to any reservation or any reservation, like you're saying, you yeah. can find a group of five guys like we have on our crew and teach them how to do hemp just like we were taught. And they'll, they'll start rebuilding their community as well, you know, and then they'll have, they'll feel good about it. You know, like I feel really good about our projects that we're doing now. I've been on a lot of different building sites, different building projects, but the, when you're actually build, rebuilding your community and putting them in healthier homes. I mean, uh, yes. there's no better feeling than that. And so I think the whole crew here feels great about it. Everybody has been rallying around it in the community. And so it's the perfect blueprint for, for any community, especially a tribal community that's in need of housing, in need of jobs. Yeah, there's just so much, and, and especially Cheyenne River. I mean, I think you guys have like a million and some acres, right? We have one thousand, or you know, we have like twelve hundred acres here, and so we're just a little tiny speck on the map. And oh, wow, I think it's a bit. I think it's a now we almost have a responsibility to to help spread this. You know, I think yes. it's. Um, I I feel like I'm almost obligated now to to get this to into everybody's you know uh, community, and so yeah. it's we're we're working on some builds to bring everybody here. They can all learn here, you know. Help us build a few houses, and then they can take all that knowledge back to their community and rebuild their community as well. So,
2: this is so great. Thank you, Danny Gjazare for for this interview. I'm 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 sure this is going to get out there. Yeah, I think it's very um apropos. It's it's ready, and I mm-hmm. think as you mentioned, housing for or even Cheyenne River and other, you know, where there's now homeless people and the yes. housing crisis can be met and, you know, to empower as if we're not powerful already Sioux people, Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota. So, but thank you very much. Um, I think this is information is right when I say the website is depart slash department slash agriculture, right?
0: Yes, currently. Yeah, we're working on getting a whole um, page just, just for the hemp, um, just because we've had people asking and yeah, we're working on that as well. Okay,
2: okay. Well, young man, it's an honor to have you here, and this is awesome responsibility that you carry. And uh, I wish you good, good, good things with it, and that the people listen to the Earth once again. I think that's the metaphor of what this interview was about—that the answers are coming from Earth, Mother Earth, once again. So, but thank you so much. It's an honor to have your your voice here, and um, go well.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it, too. And I think it, I think it's also good to say, um, you know, like, we are the original caretakers of this land, you know. Being indigenous, that's really what it means. You're, you're, that's, your, that's your traditional land. This is where you're traditionally supposed to be taking care of this land. And so going back to that, you know, I think it, it is a big full circle. You know, we were taking, we've gone so far away from taking care of Mother Earth that it's it's like a full circle moment all coming back to that you know um we we had not even grown any plants here for the for the past you know since before contact you know Mm -hmm. once contact then they took all of our farming and we hadn't farmed since since we started growing hemp you know and so it's it's really quite amazing how it's done a big full circle moment you know Mm -hmm. it's, it's good especially um as native people you know like um we have, we have a responsibility to take care of our homeland. And so this is a good way to get started.
2: That's right. Okay, man, we'll talk to you again. Who knows? Um, yeah. Be well, be well. And, and thanks for doing this, taking the time out for this.
0: You have a good day.
2: You too. Doksha. Doksha. And you are listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Tjoksen Ghost Horse. And the only time you know we'll be back is when you are, because you'll hear us.
4: But words cut deep. We gotta take a stand and fight in hand in hand. Hide behind your lies and your disguise. It starts with you and I to keep the love alive. You gotta. i stand up, we've had enough Change with your sense of dignity No, hey, we gotta act differently Why, wait, be the positivity i stand up, we've had enough Simulation Worth more than what the people Say Ignore toxic manipulation Don't be fooled by Everyone behind the scenes All this pain just makes me Wanna sleep. You gotta Change With your sense of dignity No hey We gotta act differently Why wait of dignity no hey we gotta act differently while we be the positivity all stand up
2: we had enough and that was changed by Cody Lee and Cody's a musical prodigy one of only 25 in the world today where music has shaped him into the person he is today. Cody is blind and autistic but this has never held him back from his dreams and Cody and Cody has a photographic memory with music. His range of music is endless ranging from R&B, soul, rock and roll, pop, country, oldies, alternative and even classic. He's performed across the globe with some amazing artists And for a wide variety of audiences, Cody also contributes his talents to worthy charitable organizations and corporate events. Again, that's Cody Lee, spelled K-O-D-I-L-E-E, and that song was Change. And welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. I wanted to play something that was released in the Indian Z, which is an online Indian or native news service. And it's Senator Brian Schatz, a Democrat from Hawaii, who is calling out museums, universities and other institutions for failing to comply with the Native American Graves Protection Act and Repatriation Act, a federal law known as NAGPRA. And Schatz serves as chairman of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. He's entered into the congressional record a full list of entities that he said have been slow to return ancestral remains and cultural property to their rightful owners. It was on the Senate floor on February 1st of
5: 2024. Thank you, Mr. President. For centuries, Native people have had everything stolen from them. Their lands, their water, their language, their children. It wasn't that long ago that it was the official policy of the United States government to terminate to terminate the existence of tribes and to forcibly assimilate their citizens. And a big part of that unrelenting, inhumane policy was that the remains of Native ancestors and culturally significant items were also taken from them. Not with permission, but by force. Not discovered, but stolen on battlefields and in cemeteries, under the cover of darkness, or under guise of academic research. Think about that. The United States government literally stole bones. Soldiers and agents overturned graves and took whatever they could find. And these were not isolated incidents. They happened all across the country. In my home state of Hawaii, the remains of Native Hawaiians, or Ivi Kupuna, as they are called, were routinely pillaged without regard for the sanctity of the burials or Native Hawaiian culture. And all of it was brought to some of the most venerable institutions at home and abroad to be studied like biological specimens displayed in museum exhibits as if they're paintings on loan or squirreled away in a professor's office closet never to be seen again the theft of hundreds of thousands of remains and items over generations was unconscionable in and of itself But the legacy of that cruelty continues to this very day because these museums and universities continue to hold on to these sacred items in violation of everything that is right and moral and, more importantly, in violation of federal law. To remedy this injustice, Congress passed the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, in 1990. It required museums and universities to quickly return the remains and the items that they were holding that belonged to Native Hawaiians, Alaska Natives, and American Indians. At the time, the Congressional Budget Office anticipated that it would take about five years to complete the process of repatriation. 34 years later, it is nowhere close to being done. In fact, experts recently estimated that at the current rate, it may take up to 70 more years to complete the process. Why? Why? Because these institutions, all otherwise well-respected and sought after, have done everything in their power to obstruct and obfuscate when confronted about their collections. They act as if this is some sort of impossible task, either administratively or in in determining the lineage or providence of an item. They purposely miscategorize items as, quote-unquote, culturally unidentifiable. Culturally unidentifiable. They engage with Native communities as little as possible. They quote-unquote borrow collections from one another so they can never actually be the owner responsible for them. And maybe the most outrageous of all excuses, they claim that tribes and Native groups lack the ability to take care of their own things. Lack the ability to take care of their own items of cultural patrimony, bones, stolen from graves. This smells of the worst kind of colonialism with a thin veneer of progressive ideology and verbiage. University provosts and presidents can do all of the land acknowledgments that they want. They can post lengthy statements about equity on their websites and champion champion any number of progressive causes, but that rings hollow when they are at the same time clinging on to vast collections of stolen items because of a perverse patronizing sense of ownership. This is not morally ambiguous. There's nothing to ponder here. The fact is these items do not belong in museums and universities or to science or academia. They belong to the native people from which they came. Which is why the Committee on Indian Affairs, where I'm chair, held an oversight hearing on this issue almost two years ago and demanded explanations from the foremost offenders about their delays in repatriating these items. They are located all over the country. Ohio History Connection, the Illinois State Museum, Harvard University, the University of California Berkeley, and Indiana University. Together these five institutions still hold at least 30,000 native ancestral remains. These institutions have been responsive, and many have accelerated their repatriation efforts since. Earlier this month, Harvard, which has the third largest collection of these items in the country, pledged to cover the travel expenses of native leaders to facilitate the repatriation process. Other museums, including the American Museum of Natural History and the Field Museum, have recently announced steps to finally comply with the federal law. And yet, there are still more than 70 other institutions holding almost 58,000 ancestral remains. And that's not counting the additional hundreds of thousands of cultural items in their collections. These museums and universities are everywhere. The University of Tennessee the University of Kentucky, the University of Alabama, the University of Arizona, the University of Florida, the University of Missouri-Columbia, the University of Oklahoma, the Center for American Archaeology in Illinois, the University of Texas at Austin, the Milwaukee Public Museum, and so on. This is just a small sample and I will enter the full list into the record. But the point is this, we're not done, our work is not over. These are the supposedly liberal institutions who have no problem parroting whatever progressive expression is in vogue, and yet at the same time they continue a colonial project against the explicit and repeated wishes of native people. If you say you're for equal justice, for doing right by the people of all backgrounds, then act like it. Return these remains and items to the native people they belong to all along. Some of the challenges when it comes to addressing past injustices in American history can seem so big as to be totally overwhelming. Where do you start? But this is not one of them. Returning these items matters, and the good news is it's immediately doable, but doable only if we collectively agree that getting this right is a necessary condition for justice to be restored. Doing this alone will not right past wrongs or somehow erase a long and brutal history of injustice. Of course it won't. Native people still need money for water and electricity and health care. They still, as ever, need the unimpeded right to self-determination. But the least we can do, and I mean that, the least we can do, is enable them to tell their own stories and to define themselves for themselves themselves to the rest of the world give the items back comply with federal law hurry devote resources to this demonstrate in three dimensions that you care about the values that you espouse Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that my full remarks be entered into the record. Without objection. And the list of uh, institutions in possession of the unrepatriated unre- remains also be submitted to the record. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. President.
6: Galaxy time we time on frame man in history way before the bad shit we before pollution something out the plan To bring a better solution Pack the wagons That we heading For the coastline Hotel, wake up so we're bringing you The good fight It doesn't matter If it's big
2: Lucy Jordan with Raglan, and before that, Osage Oil Boom by Robbie Robertson, the late Robbie Robertson from the movie score, Killers of the Flower Moon. And before that was, of course, Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii calling out museums, universities and other institutions for failing to comply with the Native American Graves Protection Act and Repatriation Act, a federal law known as NAGPRA.
1: But we're still afloat Now we got to do our best And Jaja will do the rest Through the love We're all in this garden Seeds of love We should be planting We just can't waste no time Time to last a smile You can't rewind you're welcome, you're welcome to my garden, a garden of love. My garden of love
2: Winston McNuff and Fixie, Garden of Love.
3: Live near by the night. Oh, mercy, mercy, mercy All things and what they used to be What about this overcrowded land? How much more be used from Mercy can't you stand?
2: So once again, I want to, okay, okay, Wena. So once again, I want to thank you for being here on First Voices Radio, being able to listen to Indigenous radio, to Native people, Native radio about Native people on a platform that is not Native oriented, but the land is. So we have a lot of deep thinking to do, and it's time to stop snorkeling and dive deeper. We must do this for Earth's sake, for all other life's sake. And then maybe the other life will permit us to live here. The air, the water, the warmth of the sun, the winds, the green things, the animals, the birds, all that that we don't think of first. We speak a denatured language, a biophobic language, Leading to a thing where you need to be connected because you've been disconnected from that relationship. So, you know, this I say because I think it's common sense, not because I know or because it's superior thinking or elitist thinking or imperial thinking is common sense. And we try to bring that to you here on First Voices Radio. Again, my name is Tioksen Ghost Horse, and I'm responsible for these words. Toksha ake watch young delo.